Welcome back to the Mahama Camp Podcast. It feels like it has been so long since I sat in this chair and did another podcast. It's been several weeks now. I've been working mainly on the essay series, the uh, Philosophical Guide to Self-Development. And this podcast is tying into that, really, and also the kind of broader work on the attention crisis. I was deeply honoured to be joined by Sebastian Watzel. Sebastian is the Associate Professor of Philosophy University of Oslo and I would say one of the world's foremost thinkers on the subject of attention. He is the author of the book Structuring Mind, The Nature of Attention and How It Shapes Consciousness um, and he is a really brilliant thinker. This is an awesome conversation talking about attention, how it functions, how you can take control of your own a bit more and also the internet slash attention economy space and what's going on with that, um, why it's bad, why it's good, what might be some possible solutions um, and just throwing out some ideas really as always if you enjoy the podcast you can subscribe on youtube you can follow along on spotify or join my substack substack uh, you get the podcasts and essays weekly to your inbox every thursday they look very nice people seem to be very fond of them uh, lots of people tell me at the weekend that they're enjoying the stuff so definitely get on it and sign up and i'll send you lots of philosophy stuff and harass you with ideas well, without further ado, I'll get out of the way. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Oh. So, I'm... Um very excited to be joined today by Sebastian Watzel. Sebastian is the Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Oslo. He's the author of Structuring Mind, The Nature of Attention, How It Shapes Consciousness. And I would say one of the foremost thinkers on attention in the world today. So massive welcome to Sebastian. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. And I wonder, uh, how did you get interested in attention in the first place? What was it that kind of drew you to the topic? Um, my first interest in attention was from uh, studying consciousness, actually. Mm. Uh, so as a, as a philosophy graduate student, I studied consciousness. And I wanted to know some more things about how we know about our own conscious uh, states. Uh, and then I wanted to know also about how we use our conscious experience to learn about the world. Um, and I discovered at that, that point that attention seems to be crucial for both of these things. Uh, it's uh, I mean, by focusing attention on our own minds, we can learn about our own conscious experiences. And by focusing attention on, on the world, we can learn about uh, the world. And then I discovered that that wasn't really something that philosophers had written a lot about. And I discovered that there's this huge trove of research in psychology, in the neurosciences about it. Um, and so I started digging, digging into that, uh, discovered that in the history of philosophy, there was actually a discussion about attention um, in the early modern period. Um, and um, in, for example, the Buddhist tradition or other Eastern uh, East Asian traditions. Uh, and so I discovered that there's this whole field lying there wide open. Um, and I started uh, working on it. Um, yeah. And it's so interesting that it is so underdeveloped because that was something I noticed as well when I was looking at the ethics of attention. I think your paper was the only one that I could find, really. And it seems to be such a um, key topic almost. I wonder if you could go into for people how attention works, uh, your priority theory, um, priority structure view and, you know, how that kind of um, how you think about attention. Well, the the way I, I'm thinking about attention is that attention is what's organizing your mind. So stuff comes into your uh, mind through the senses primarily, and there's some things that are stored in you in memory. And attention takes what's activated in your mind and organizes that, sort of stacks it up by the priority it has for you, so from the top priority down to the things that are sort of deprioritized and kind of put into the background. Um, and and it, it uses that organization then for action, so what's a top priority is going to be playing a more a bigger role for your actions, for what are you going to form beliefs about, what are you going to ask questions about. Um, and so that activation uh, of our current mental states that attention creates in terms of uh, its priority for you 
is going to be used in various ways by, by us. And that prioritization, that's another part, like the second part of my book was about that, has a big uh, effect or a, a, a sort of upshot in how we experience the world. Um, so, you know, our experience, our consciousness, is what it's like, what it feels like to us. Uh, their attention seems also important. Um, so when, uh, for example, suppose you're listening to uh, a piece of, of music. Um, there's a band playing, there's a guitar, there's the drums, there's some pianist. Um, and when you, you can shift your attention in, in listening from one instrument to the other, from the melody to the rhythm um, and some nuances in, in say, how a particular instrument is playing, and that doing that clearly changes your experience. You're going to, your whole musical experience is going to be different. So you prioritize these different parts of uh, the musical piece, um, in, one instrument, another instrument, the melody, the rhythm, and that changes your experience and roughly changes it, I think, by um, what is in the center of your experience and what is in the periphery. Um, and so that prioritization that I'm speaking about also has a, an upshot in how we experience the world. And it, it's like our perspective on the world largely is what is central, what is pushed into the background. Um, so that's also central to my way of thinking about attention, that that notion, that, that way of prioritizing for action, uh, what philosophers sometimes call a sort of the function of attention, uh, sort of its role in our cognitive architecture, that's connected with the way attention shows up from the first person point of view, how it, how it is like for us. Um, yeah, and that seems almost quite, I, I don't know what you think of like the spotlight model of attention, because that seems quite different to that type of um, way of thinking about it. I, I think it's so fascinating, the idea of attention organizing the mind. It was something, I don't know if you're familiar with John Verveke, um and his work on relevance realization. He does a lot of stuff on attention. I, I had him on the podcast previously, but he was talking about that, how attention is almost optimizing. If you're looking at something, you're optimizing seeing it or you're when you're listening you're optimizing hearing a particular thing it's like zeroing in in this complex environment with so much different stuff um is this a kind of new model of attention do you think it is it is there a conflict there maybe a little bit or is it just underdeveloped i don't know i think there are connections here to uh both some things in the in the history of, of philosophy and in in psychology um so it just looks at the history of philosophy. I think some of that is actually you find in some some of the early sort of phenomenologists and yep. uh, gestalt psychologists. Mm. Um, so you mentioned, for example, relevance. So is a, a, a sort of one of the founders of sort of a, a phenomenological tradition of sociology, Alfred Schütz. He writes about mm. relevance and attention mm. organizing the mind, and he was close in correspondence with a philosopher called Aaron Gurwitch. Um, writing around the mid 20th century, who wrote about uh, the field of, of of consciousness and attention and how it structures that. So I'm kind of influenced by that. So it's not new. Yeah. And those people were reacting against um, the model where the only role for attention was to select particular items that are already pre-presented in the field of consciousness. Um, and so that spotlight model is something that react against because they think there's much more to attention than just like picking particular items that are already presented in the field. Um, and in, psych in psychology, I think there's also connections to, you have, you know, you, you can think um, the spotlight model, can, on the spotlight model, attention just, um, there's like perceptual representations and then attention shines a spotlight on them and, and highlights some of them and, and, and makes those easier, for example, to access for us in our memory formation, in our belief formation, while we process information. Um, on the way I'm thinking about it, that's partly what attention does. But it also, for example, changes the way our uh, representations, uh, uh, changes our representations in, in perception itself. It, it makes, for example, uh, changes to, um, you know, how, how much detail is represented in perception. It changes uh, how, 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 um, uh, how accurate the perception is. And that's all in the service of prioritization. So there's much more yeah. than the spotlight. Um, mm. And prioritization as well. I was reading today, actually, your paper on um, self-control and attention. The, and it was so fascinating to see like that attention as kind of the 
foundation of agency because obviously the, a lot of the free will debate seems to hinge on choice and things like that and this kind of the freedom of the will but this type of attentional choice of referencing one thing over another or making salient you find one thing salient and then reprioritizing it uh, you give the example of somebody that is finds a cookie very salient but doesn't want to eat the cookie and so has to kind of reprioritize on a run how central is attention to agency and, and to self-control? I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit because I've never really heard it anywhere else. Uh, well, there are. There, I think it's very central. Uh, I don't. Mm. I think there are other people writing about it. There's a philosopher mm. called Wayne Wu who yes, uh, yeah, who yeah, thinks yeah. that attention is um, central to action. So he thinks attention just is selecting for action. Um, and so on his view, attention is involved in all action because every action involves a selection problem or a problem for choosing one out of many possible behavioral mm-hmm. paths in the you know the ways we could act. Um, so I think that attention is central in agency, but um, uh, I think that there could be some sort of fairly automatic forms of action where yes. attention is not involved. Um, now, like, you know, the, you mentioned that work of mine on, on self-control. Um, I do think there's this very interesting, so the way I'm, th- there's this very interesting um, um, uh, idea that I think uh, hasn't really been developed, that um, freedom of attention uh, is, is kind of necessary for all kinds of freedom. So James Williams um, yes. writes about mm. that uh, in, 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 in his work on, on attention and, 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 and the internet and, and, uh, and kind of... Um, and, and I think that question is kind of what I'm addressing in that self-control paper or beginning to address. I'm, so I'm like working now more about it with some students. Like how exactly is attention involved in freedom of action? And the, the way I'm thinking it's involved is that attention is like the simplest way. So imagine, so, so okay, okay, let's, let's start with this. Let's think about a very simple creature, um, like, like simpler than an insect, where there's something happening in the environment, and that thing just triggers a behavioral response kind of automatically. So that will be a creature that doesn't have freedom. So you have something happening in the environment, that thing is registered, but that registration is immediately transferred transferred into a certain response. So you have a, you know, like uh, uh, there's some food in the environment, the uh, creature registered that food and reacts to it. There's a predator, it registers a predator and reacts to it. So attention gives you freedom because now, so suppose you have a predator and some food. Mm. Um, Now you want to register both of them but depending on your current needs, if you're very hungry, you want to prioritize the food. If you are, you know, if that's a very dangerous predator, you want to run away, even if, you know, you might suffer a little bit of hunger. And so attention helps you to prioritize among these things by keeping both of them, kind of both of these pieces of information alive. And so I think that gives attention its crucial role in free action. It helps you to integrate what your motivations, what you currently want and need, with what's going on in the environment, what information you have of what's happening in the world. And it does so in a flexible way. Um, and so attention gives you that flexible interface uh, to the world. And I think that we see that in the self-control. Now think about, think about the cookies. Mm. Um, in the case of the cookies, um, uh, you, know, you, you perceive some cookies, and, but you have decided that actually you don't want to eat cookies today uh, because you want to go run and be, be fit and so on. Um, now I think you you can kind of that these you can kind of you can enact your pre, your your uh, decision to go on a run and not eat the cookies by shifting the focus uh, on the cookies. You just you're, you're shifting the focus away from the cookies, and thereby you're gonna you're gonna be enabled to resist that immediate um, impulse to eat them. Um, so it's it's like the praise of the predators and the food, but in a more sophisticated kind of way. Mm, it seems to connect to the consciousness thing as well, that it's almost like to have freedom in that sense. Consciousness is a precondition of it to what we define as freedom. And is that attention coming into that question as well, that you almost have to have the the capacity to switch between objects of attention to be classified as free if you're just a you're just responding, I suppose you're not. Um, 
you don't have what we describe as freedom. So is it? Hmm. Yeah, yeah I think sure. it's, I, I think I, if yeah. if suppose so so you can have a, a mechanism um, where an an organism just registers something and prioritizes in some sense of prioritize among a range of stimuli. So it prioritizes the predator over food, for example. If that's just built in <laughs> into the hardware of the system, then I think that organism wouldn't have any freedom. So it needs to be flexible. And then, uh, so you, you need to be, you know, you'd be able to shift the focus depending on, for example, what you want. And so um, I think, I think that this is, con this is connected to uh, consciousness because I think that consciousness itself is kind of, uh, involves that ability to integrate uh, a number of different pieces of information and to sort of take a perspective on it. So I do think consciousness is connected, but I, I, I con connected to that. But I also suspect that some primitive version of this um, prioritization can happen uh, without consciousness. Uh, maybe it does yeah. insects, for example. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and I'm kind of thinking that there's a lot of unconscious forces that kind of act on attention in terms of our... Um, in terms of like novel stimuli, things that you pointed out, like a dangerous predator and stuff like we'd have these kind of evolved responses that would draw our attention to things more readily. And then sort of where the ethics comes in might be on reflecting about that. That was kind of maybe where I was trying to get to with the oh. consciousness is like the free, the freedom is a precondition for responsibility. Um, is that where then the, the ethics comes in? Um, yeah, it partly. I mean, I do think that what makes attention sort of ethically significant is partly that it's an aspect of our of our agency. What we what are we what we're sort of doing, what we have some level of control over. And as you mentioned, of course, it's not complete. That control is not complete. So there's a lot of things that capture our attention, and that's also important. Uh, that passive capture, because imagine this creature who who just focuses on what they want to focus on. So this is this creature who like just focuses on work. And like, then there's the fire, the fire alarm. And then there's, you know, the grizzly coming out of the woods. That would be a very horrible state of affairs if you're just locked into your own desires. Or at some point, if you can imagine, there's also kind of unfreedom to this, right? You mm. decide that you're going to work on this one thing. And like, there's all the other people who have interesting things to say about it, uh, about what you should focus on. Just you have made a decision at one point in your life, and now you're locked into this one road forever. Mm. That would be sad. So you need an interplace, an inter, an interplay between mm. the sort of controlling your attention, but being open to uh, these passive forces. Mm, yeah, exactly. I, like you can't really be locked into one or the other, I suppose. And um, I'm, I suppose on the topic of the ethics, there was interest. You mentioned stoicism at one point because I think this is something that's kind of in a lot of Stoic philosophy is this preference for controlling attention and that you should be paying attention to what you value, what your goals are and where you're putting your attention. You know, Epictetus says like you become what you give your attention to. There's this aspect of character and attention that giving your attention to something is building your character. And it has that kind of habitual nature to it that if you keep doing it, you could end up like the creature that's just mono fixated on one thing and you're not actually adapting anymore. Do you see it connected to those philosophical traditions as well and the ethics of attention? Uh, yeah, I do think that the traditions in the history of philosophy that may have been most interested in attention uh, often emphasize that character building or virtue uh, aspect of, of ourselves, that uh, because as you say, what we attend to builds who we are over time. Attention is patterned. Uh, while it's fleeting, it's always changing. It's also patterned and uh, leads to changes in 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 a, in who, who we are over over long periods of time. So attention is kind of a crucial aspect of of, of virtue like that. And so I agree with the, those traditions. What I, I I like to emphasize though as well, and what some of these traditions I think don't emphasize maybe enough is that the environment in which the individual is placed is also crucial. Uh, I think. Um, you know, it doesn't. It's not enough to just be vir virtuous. Um, there's an environment in which you embed it, 
And if you're, I mean, you know, it, it's and it, in, in some people uh, are, are lucky uh, to be, for example, embedded in an environment that has a lot of resources for them available for good things to attend to and so on. And some people don't don't have that, and so we kind of miss out on certain things that we look at or see or listen to, not because we don't have the wrong character, but because our environment doesn't have the right stimuli in them or because our social communities systematically exclude us from certain pieces of information. So I want to emphasize that mm. aspect as well. Yeah, definitely. There's something that stuck out to me, I suppose, about the virtue traditions and the kind of the, something that they seem to have in common is that attentional training. I know you mentioned Buddhism and Stoicism seems to have that as well, that there's almost a skill to attention. But as you pointed out, if you're in an environment without that, I mean, you're going to be caught up in whatever is going on. Is there, do you think there's an educational component to this? Because you had mentioned, I know in the self-control essay about attentional skills and attentional skill building. Um, is that something you've come across in the literature or that's going on? Or is it kind of waiting to be done? Uh, well, no, there are there, there is some some. Um, I mean, a lot of um, I mean, a lot of the the draw that we see currently on um, sort of mindfulness techniques or various meditation meditation techniques. I mean, they're explicitly uh, sort of t- advertised as ways which you can train your capacity for attention that will then help you to. You know, be better at certain tasks, become a, a better person, um, and they of course come from lots of these uh, meditative traditions, uh, like for example uh, Buddhism. Um, so yeah, so so th- there's a lot of uh, emphasis on this idea of training attention. Now the question is, of course, what do we actually train attention for? Yeah. Uh, one is that we're going to train attention to be able to just focus very hard for a long period of time and get a lot of work done. I think that's one way in which some, you know, that that kind of training for attention is very use, useful if you're thinking about how to train an investment banker. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you want to train a person who, for example, is a good listener and who is able to respond to social cues in the environment, if things come up, if your baby cries, you're going to hear it. That might not be the best <laughs> attention. So I think when one train, when one talks about training, it's important to think about what exactly do we want from a good capacity uh, of attention? Do we just want this kind of ability to focus? Or do we really want a more sort of socially sensitive uh, type of attention? And a lot of these, these meditative traditions actually were, I think, very sensitive to this. They didn't want to just train someone to focus on, you know, say, um, an, an image, or uh, they wanted someone whose attention is flexible and responds also to uh, environmental and social cues. And I think um, in some of the discussion contemporary on, on sort of training attention, I see that aspect a little bit missing. Really, that's very interesting. So it's more kind of, fo- yeah, it was kind of reminding me there in terms of like, finding the right thing salient and the right things relevant. You know, if you're working really hard and your partner comes in and is very upset or something, you shouldn't just, you know, there's, you got to be able to switch between them and kind of, there's a fluidity to it between like tight and expanded or it can't be too tight or too loose in a sense. Um, it requires the full range of attention. Um, but I wonder, it, there was, does it connect kind of to the, I'm thinking about the virtue of Sofferson of right desire in a sense, is there is there virtues of attention that you see that are related to this? Because I know you you said it kind of connects to the virtue traditions, but like is wise, wise attention, courageous attention, temperate attention? Do you think there's a, a connection between that? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, there may be. Attention is probably involved, particular patterns of attention in any of these virtues that you mention. Um, mm. And uh, I'm I'm currently kind of t- talking to some PhD students, or one in particular who are interested in the ancient tradition and how they uh, talked about attention. And I think there's more and more sort of work on on how important it was for how Aristotle and so on 
talked about virtues, how, how attention may have been neglected in how we uh, have interpreted them. Uh, I don't know very much about that, but I know that people are doing that currently. Yeah, yeah. Um, what I'm sort of interested in yeah. is I'm kind of liking the idea that there's that attention is kind of guided by um, um, uh, uh, well, attention should be responsive to what's of significance, mm. um, and that provides us a kind of standard. Uh, for attention across these various virtues, so they can be different. Things can be significant in a number of different ways. Um, so they can be epistemically significant; they help us to learn, get knowledge about the world. They can be of personal significance, and something can be significant partly only because you care about it. But then they can be morally significant um, um, in a way that doesn't just depend on whether you care about it. Some things are significant even if you don't care about it. And I hope to be able to carve out an, a notion of significance where, mm. where that can operate as a kind of regulative ideal for attention, that um, across different domains, uh, attention should be responsive to what's of significance. Um, um, and I hope I can make it work, but uh, ask me in, in two years or so whether whether <laughs> okay. I've succeeded. It's yeah. well, I mean, I yeah, that like to give attention to what matters most or what is most significant seems like the the perfect kind of ideal. And I guess that segues into the the situation of the attention economy and how we have an entire industry that's designed to capture attention. So there's a lot of pressure on people's attention now to not taken away from what might be significant to them to other people's aims, maybe the aims of industry, the aims of marketing, whatever it is, there's a lot of competition for attention. Um, and I know you're doing a bit of work on it. I wonder what your thoughts on the attention economy are and how it relates to this significance problem. Um, yeah, so the attention economy, uh, I first want to say a little bit about what, what we should mean by that. Uh, I think it can mean a number of different things. Uh, one one thing it can mean is that um, our sort of decision making is dependent on what we focus attention on, and that can be um, that environment in which you make those decisions uh, can be sort of engineered and changed by other actors. And so I think that's happening a lot online. You know, you think about the internet. <laughs> uh, the internet is a created space. I mean, it's a human created space. Uh, that people have made in some way, and it's controlled by by people. I mean, private and public actors own a lot of the internet, and in that environment, we're, we're taking place. And that environment may have been structured so that it brings out um, the role of attention in our decision making more or less, and that can be used uh, and manipulated for various purposes. So that's one way of understanding the attention economy as kind of like that creation of a space in which uh, our dependence on attention can be manipulated by uh, by others. The other the other thing that and that's kind of like the buying and selling of attention is that we literally sell our attention to actor to others and i think that's a little harder to make sense of and i have an idea about how to do that um and that that i think there's a question whether that is itself problematic or and then the question is or or whether it's sort of problematic because it's happening in a space that that i've mentioned before that's owned by private and public actors um where where though where where it leads to problematic results yeah a hundred percent and the, the kind of the the issue with the the former version i mean the the other version is kind of the normal like if you're working for somebody and they're paying you and in some sense they're paying for your attention because they're it's part of your ability to you know solve the problems that they want you to solve but i i think the issue for the the latter bit is that it's a it's happening kind of on a an unconscious level with micro-targeted advertisements or there's a large kind of mechanism behind trying to influence people's behaviors through attention. That's manipulative, essentially, I suppose. If it's a willing contract that people enter into, I suppose that's a different sort of arrangement than 
just being on the internet and not really realizing that there's these actors at play in the back. Well, okay. Um, I do think, actually, I mean, you, it's good that you mentioned work. I do think mm. that uh, at work, part of what we do is um, to lend out our capacities yeah. uh, to an employer who then has some level of control over those capacities and we get something in return, normally a, a salary. Um, and uh, those capacities can be, you know, if you're lucky like me, that capacity can be, you know, you get, uh, I, I need to like hold an ethic lecture or a lecture, the introduction of philosophy. Uh, maybe I don't want to do that. Maybe I want to go on a walk with my child in the forest. Um, but I need to do that now. Um, and so I use that. But if I'm less lucky, then I maybe have to chop up some meat in a meat factory. Um, and then I get, uh, uh, then I use my capacity in this way. So, and attention is involved in all of these. I need to pay attention to the classroom. When I'm in the classroom, I need to pay attention to how to chop up the meat. Okay, so that's one thing. Um, but I think the same thing is actually also happening on the internet. So I think you yeah. said like, well, because here I'm also lending some control over my capacities out to various companies, like, for example, Google and Facebook, they're like, Meta is like, they're, they're big on that model. Because they, they, the reason I, I mean, you know, I can pay some company uh, for email, um, you know, five, 10 euros a month, and get email, or I can get Gmail, um, you know, and, well, I'm not, am I getting Gmail for free? No, I mean, you know, that would be, it's not a charity organization. They're getting something else from me. And what do they get? Is they get some control over what I'm paying attention to, uh, especially in this case through Google search. They can direct what results I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because Google lends that out in turn to uh, advertisement companies. So I'm giving up some control over my attention in return for free email search and, and so on and so forth, access to friends on social media and all these things. But I'm giving up control over my attention, so I think that is so. So that is like work in my in my view. Um, yeah. It's and this is a paper I'm doing together with my colleague Catherine Brown. Um, it's like work. We are giving up control over some of our capacities in order for uh, services. So I think we are kind of in a certain way. I think we're doing the same thing at uh, uh, that we do at work all the time when we on the internet. Um, yeah. The internet is a big space where we just give up control over attention in return for uh, something that we want or need, like access to friends, uh, communication resources, search, and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I There is a trade-off. I mean, that's kind of the whole zero price model, isn't it? That it's free, but you get things, but in exchange, your data is being sold to advertisers. Or there's kind of, that's the business model. But I, the incentives of that business model as regarding attention are what I find. I don't know if you've heard Jaron Lanier. He's like the father of virtual reality, writes a lot about social media. And he talks about how that the business model is really about addiction. It's not about attention. It's about capturing as much attention as possible. And that that actually leads to certain business practices that are not good for the consumer, their well-being or for their you know mental health or um, even using these social dynamics or gamification and things that lean a little bit more pressure on people to use these things than maybe they would want to. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a comparison to work, but <laughs> no, oh, well, it's happening all yeah. the time at work. I mean, it's yeah, like, true. I think it is important to realize that this kind of what's happening online is that there's, there's some powerful companies that have, uh, you know, a lot of resources available um, and those are uh, creating structures um, in which uh, we give out. I mean, they're exploitative in the sense, I think, probably, because we're giving out more than, than uh, you know, w- would be fair to get email and so on be- because we are, we are in a poor negotiating position with regard to these companies. They control the Internet, right? Um and like, and there's like lots of interests, political or private interests, like invested on this. And so they're going to create structures that, as you say, like can be um, can be addictive, and they're going to use this uh, to get as much out of us uh, as they can. And there's going to be political. There's a lot of knowledge about how these structures are used for political manipulation, then and so on. 
Um, now, at work, I think we need to not forget that that's also <laughs> happening at work. It's like True. people like me, they face a problem of like unfreedom only online. If you're working in this meat factory and if you are struggling uh, with your job and if you're working, I mean, if you're reading about like people who work on Mechanical Turk that, around the Amazon, they're not, they're like doing tasks on their computer. I mean, they're not like, looking at advertisement of and they're doing micro tasks on the computer they're they're kind of in a in an extremely oppressive work environment and i think so so i think we just seeing that expanding to more aspects of life so where a lot of the things that have been regulated in the labor market through for example unions and so on in at least some parts of the world like the, the work day is so and so long you can't take more than this. Uh, you don't have a right to control when you go into the bathroom and so on. That has that has been taken away in this new part where like now we're lending our capacities and there's no regulation. There's nothing. It's like the Wild West. It's like the 19th century, the kind of stuff that you know Marx was writing about in the big factories in England. Uh, it's, it's a bit like that happening online because we haven't mm. figured out how to regulate that market. We haven't and people are are like at the mercy of like these extremely powerful uh, companies. Yeah, and it's having a massive effect on culture and on individuals. I mean, the problems of polarization and misinformation, a lot of stuff I've been working on at the moment. But I, I guess to bring it to attention again, do you think that the changing of priorities, kind of interested in the pattern of attention or how this, because something that James Williams said in that um, in his thesis, the freedom and persuasion in the attention economy was that the functioning of attention could act as a regulatory framework for persuasive technologies, like the proper functioning of attention that if, if that was respected, so maybe people have a right to prioritize the things that they want to prioritize to some extent. Yeah, how would I you mean, measure it? I don't know. I, I, I agree that there, there's this, there's, I think, a powerful, um, I think there's a powerful analogy uh, that I, I, I'm thinking a lot about that people, you know, in the Enlightenment period, like discover the importance of personal autonomy, mm-hmm. um, and personal autonomy, um, already at that point meant partly, um, the 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 freedom of thought. <laughs> So having a freedom over your own mind. And attention is is like the freedom over our own attention, being autonomous with regard to our attention, uh, uh, is is like that that's a part important part of that. I have a colleague uh, that, that in, in Finland, Kaisa Karki, who is like writing about, for example, autonomy and attention. I think it's super important to find that out. Um uh, I mean and then there's this regulative ideal that I mentioned at the beginning, that attention mm. ought to be directed to what's of significance. And a lot of these, uh, what's happening online is that we systematically um, led away from that, that ideal. And I think we need to like, figure out like, just like, what, like how, how, this, how, how this importance of autonomy with regard to attention and how this importance for like having our attention respond to significance how to respect that and the the problem for how to do that right i think is that it seems of course it's given that we live in a world of other people it cannot be quite right that we should be that what should happen is that uh, we have no no one has a right to ever talk to us <laughs> you know that seems like that seems that that seems yeah. wrong um and you know and other people have a right to somehow try to persuade us um but i think uh, you know just like in the i think but we think we need to find a way in which maybe you know when that other that other side isn't a single person but like this international powerful company there should be some limits or like an or or a, or a powerful figure uh, also states i mean we can see that also in 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 states um so um um yeah i think uh, i i do think that there there that that um this this idea that our mind should be free and respond to the world in an appropriate way is linked to attention <laughs> And we need to find out how to respect that uh, better than we currently do. 
that seems like the most crucial thing really and that we haven't at the moment kind of figured out what to do with these technologies that can actually protect that freedom of attention um it's so interesting the significance as well or the idea of being able to give attention to what's significant or what's relevant because so much of the social media is designed towards um pushing you towards things that are just going to get you caught up essentially stickiness things that are going to have you on there for a long time and that that almost seems like the antithesis of being able to give attention to significance like would it it would have to limit your use almost of the technology because to give all the time to the, like there's other things that are significant like your family your friends your relationships you know your what pursuits your exercise um it would almost have to have limits upon how much you can use of the, the internet do you think or is that uh, yeah maybe much? i i kind of like i'm one of these people i'm one of the i, I actually am i'm some people are all about the technology and how that's yeah. bad i'm actually not i i think mm-hmm. that te- I, I that's why i kind of said originally that i think the internet is a big space that's made by humans yeah. um it's it's and i think we should think of that space in the same way as we think about you know other parts of our the space we live in yeah. um it's it's you know we we connect to each other through the internet i mean we are talking on the internet right now it can be extremely valuable people find people that are uh, you know have interesting things to say are similar to them online there's like great opportunities but then there is this problem i think like in the in the i mean the the technology um on on the internet a lot of this space it's private it's is owned and in a way that you know like think about think about the offline world if you want to meet your friends you're going to drive on a road uh there's no one who can just block the road and say oh actually today we'll like direct not you to one particular or, kind of place. or mr or like say oh you know before you get yeah. to your friends you need to like do this task or here. look at some advertisement <laughs> online that's how it is like someone controls mm-hmm. this and like a, a person you know like twi- people use twitter to you know connect to the friends uh to you know find out information about important topics and it's literally we're doing this in the living room of you know a a, a powerful person i mean that's you just imagine that that's crazy you know it's like <laughs> that's what's yeah. crazy about it. it's not technology it's that's crazy is that we're doing these tasks that are mm. super important for us in the in, in in the privately owned space of a person who can just by a, a big yeah. portion of the world um and so that's yeah. i think in my view it's less that specific technology is like what's happening on the technology um yeah yeah i know i completely agree i i think it's a crazy because they've become kind of the public space or the forums for communication and for sharing ideas a lot of the time but then the design of the platforms and the business incentives kind of influence the structures it's like the marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message that there's kind of I'd heard it compared to the aqueducts in Rome that like it's this amazing technology that brings water to everybody. But, you know, there might be lead in it that's driving people crazy and there's something kind of we have to contend with. But I, on the business note, I wonder if the government alternative, like if the government was in charge of it, would that not be also an issue? I suppose I'm thinking of China and the way they're oh, yeah. kind of handling it is like there's almost no good democratic solution at this point where it's like the business one's not working. The government one is a bit fishy based on what we've seen in other countries. Like, do does there need to be like a third party kind of thing? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's, I think there's a bunch of, I mean, you're completely right that to say, you know, the way to solve these problems is to just give all the authority to the government. You know, we see that in Russia. We see that in China. That's not, that's not going to be, not be better. Um, yeah. Then you know, then there's like the sort of completely free market model. I mean, in Europe, in the Scandinavian countries, especially, uh, we do have this old idea that I think is still a good idea: social democracy. You know, sort of like uh, that is market, but regulated through. It's through democratically elected governments, and I think we need to think about how to make the internet more democratic. Um, do I have? I mean, this involves technology, involves new forms of governance. 
Um, and part of the problem, of course, is that the internet is this big international thing. So, you know that that you know we're we're talking um, on on platforms that are situated in one country and therefore regulated by the laws of that country uh, and the other countries. Like you know, it's not like Norway could just decide that the internet in Norway is going to work uh, like this. I do think that what one one I think can do is what's also happening in some other uh, parts that one just one try like a country like Norway um, could try out some things um, in a small in a small scale way um, that then could be you know that could be serve as role models um, for. Um, or other countries, for example. Um, yeah, I'd heard Ireland is, Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower, had said that Ireland should really step up and do it, which is where I'm from um, and where I'm based. Uh, yeah. There's a big, a big because a lot of the companies are based there as well. I mean, Meta have headquarters in Dublin and other ones yeah. that there is an opportunity there to expand that conversation. But it's it's difficult again, yeah, when it's international and when there's so much kind of, so much influence. I mean, billions of people I use these services and it's a, it's a very interesting circumstance, but I think it really comes down to this attention. Um, that's really what I think is the. Well, it does. I mean, I agree. It. <laughs> yeah. it's, I mean, when you think, I mean, here's like what, here's another way of thinking about that. It's like in the world, um, um, in the offline world, uh, you know, the distance between you and I can be measured in kilometers. Um in the online world, you think about like what is keeping you from certain things is that you're not paying attention to them. What's easy to get to is like what is easy to pay attention to. Attention is kind of like in a certain way the measure by which we co- connect to each other. And I think the limits of our attention are the limits of what w- our online world. And so it is. That's why I think the discussion should be. It is also in part about attention because that's what creates what limits or expands our uh, personal and collective kind of viewpoint online. Yeah, that is so such an interesting way of looking at it. Um, I had never really thought about like that in that kind of way. And that the limits are, yeah, that you're, there's too much information all the time. That was Herbert Simon's kind of observation about that the information economy actually became an attention economy because what information consumes is attention. There's a, plethora of information and there's a scarcity of attention and i think we're using a lot of these algorithms the recommendation algorithms to try and solve that problem that there's just too much information to get people the information that's relevant to them or that they would like to see but i wonder about the principles of those systems because it seems to come down to significance again or relevance like what you know what should be relevant because who could say you know what should be the metric for what we find significant or relevant Um, I mean, one. I mean, this is just you know, run this like this is a thought that um, uh, I've had, and uh, uh, I, I don't know, run run this idea by you. I think one part of the problem uh, is that at least on some spaces, uh, some social media, but also I think that's partly partly that's also true. I mean, social media like Facebook, WhatsApp, uh, and so on. At Instagram, I think that's clear is that the problem is that these are really used for many different purposes. Um, and significance in one dimension and significance in a different dimension, they can diverge. So take, take you know, s- suppose you're going to the library to find information, right? I mean, th- there you find information and the, it's clearly optimized for finding information. I mean, there's a whole system that librarians have devised to find, to organize information. Why is Facebook not optim- not looking like that library? Or why is Instagram not looking like that library? Well, here's why. Because it'd be really boring. <laughs> it would be, it would be, I mean, it's one reason, right? I mean, people wouldn't want to spend time of it, but it's that maybe, you know, maybe there's a, a financial interest by these companies. But also these things are also places where we hang out with our friends. Where we, it's like, a, you know, they function also like a pub. <laughs> they yeah. function like a family dinner table where we just want to hang out and make connections, make personal bonds with people. And it's doing this, and that's a different kind of significance, right? I mean, you just want to like hang out with your buddies and build personal connections uh, and so on. And 
that and the information search for like you know stuff about vaccines and and so on is happening in the same place and who i mean it's completely unclear how to optimize for these two things at once it's like turning something into a library and turning it into a pub they're going to be very different demands on how that space is going to look like um yeah. and if you try to do both you're going to both do both of them really badly um mm. so you know how do we solve this online i don't know i mean if you just build if you're just going to build a library type space well the problem is that no one's going to use it because people also don't go to the library the real libraries you know they that so so that, there's a problem i don't know the solution to but the problem is that the internet does so many different things and significance and it's true significance guides us online it guides our attention but significance can come in these varieties and uh how how to I mean, even if no bad actors are ple- present in this and there are a lot of bad actors present um i think it's hard to optimize in all these dimensions at the same time yeah so difficult i mean, i was thinking about like the news feed when they tried to have the chronological news feed on uh facebook and instagram and it's just like there's so much being uploaded it's just every bit of nonsense that somebody throws up on the internet is just going to appear one after another and nobody will use it but then the personalization can trap you in a bubble where you're just seeing essentially like, you know, if you're into anti-vaccine stuff, you're going to see just more and more and more anti-vaccine stuff. And you might never see an alternative opinion because of the, the nature of the personalization. I wonder if there, if it could, you could have a metacognitive, almost like a step back where you have people can interact with the recommendation algorithm. So they can choose what the significance should be. So you have, okay, I want more social stuff. Okay, I want more informational stuff. Like you could have some sort of interface where you can prioritize what, you know, it is that you're looking for on the space. But, I think that's uh, that seems to me a good idea um, to create yeah. something like, I mean, that in, in fact, what you do create is then kind of turn this for some period of time into the pub or the library where you can say now, I mean, like I'm here on, on now not to hang out with my friends, but to find out information about the vaccines, I'm turning on the info button and then (laughs) I I turn it, I go to the library as it were. Um, I think, yeah, I think something like that, it it can work. I mean, I do think also there's one big success story on the internet that, that Mm. shows how it's, how, how it's coming down. That's Wikipedia. I mean, it's an amazing model for uh, we, we have created a, a better encyclopedia that probably has ever existed um, mm. through this completely um, uh, sort of crowdsourced uh, in this completely crowdsourced kind of kind of way with with some oversight but fairly minimal and it seems to work really well. I think one can also think about how to make other parts of the internet more like that and mm. what we can learn from that, what we might not yep. uh, be able to learn from it. Mm, yeah and it seems the incentives on wikipedia have attracted a very different kind of audience people that are putting stuff on it because they're interested in things and they want to build this kind of knowledge base and then people that are consuming it for whatever purposes there's there's almost more of a an ideal there in a sense of information and knowledge rather than maybe instagram which might be popularity or social status or seems to really matter what the the ideal of the platform is in terms of how it functions um, yeah and um maybe maybe one uh, uh maybe one can change some other parts of the online world uh to 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 resemble that a little bit more um i mean there there are limits because that that you know one reason wikipedia works is that there are clear rules about what mm. kind of information belongs there and it's it's pretty clear you know like it's only su- supposedly objective facts so that can be kind of an objective ideal but about a, a, a sort of regulative ideal there that it's supposed to be objective and so in in a lots of other discussions there isn't uh there isn't anything that's so very objective um and and i think uh, and in and sometimes update every day like the news is changing and so on so it's it's harder um yeah it's a very interesting point there as well about the objective kind of language and objective facts because one of the problems that i keep seeing coming up in the literature on social media is the that optimizing for attention seems to optimize for emotional language or for moral language 
that seems to be something that the type of content that people post is oftentimes t- breaking taboos or it's kind of things that would be emotionally charged because that gets more attention essentially like anger fear um seems to get more click throughs mm-hmm. so that kind of that aspect of attention maybe is also what's driving it. So you could have it then maybe if if you were to limit the ability to do that. But then again, would that limit honest expression or things that are important that people are saying? Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, there. Um, it's true that there are these these. I mean, it's well known from the research on attention. Yeah, that yeah. Emotionally right. charged stimuli are going to attract attention. So if you want to keep it, people. Uh, on on social media, that emotional stimuli are are going to going to work, and it's going to also engage them, and so they're gonna. There is lots of stuff uh, uh, there that has to do with the emotions. Um, I um, yeah, but I mean, I do think that unfortunately, changing the internet by itself is not. <laughs> It's it, the internet is not it, it's not separate from the rest of the world. These mm. you know people who use the emotions to capture attention that's, that's preceded internet. You know, I'm from Germany. Pretty much, it's isn't like it? a, it's like it was one of the big draws of the Nazi parties. They created mm. these big emotions in people. They brought it to their home. They created a feeling of belonging. So um, and so that's that's worked before the internet. And I think you're not going to change it by regulating the internet by itself um you need to give people you know people who are desperate are going to you know they they, you know if you if you're stressed out at work you go to the internet to get some release (laughs) and then um you find the say and if you don't go to the internet you go to the pub and beat someone else up i mean that you know it's not like the world before the internet was this Kind of a nice <laughs> it was, place. It's um, like a beautiful kind of paradise where nothing ever went wrong. <laughs> um, no, certainly. I've I've heard people talk about that with sophistry kind of in the um, pre-Socratic time where there was these guys who just give these persuasive speeches and bullshit people. And that's kind of what social media is, that it's this modern kind of sophistry engine. But um, yeah, and I wonder, I mean, is there anything about attention that you think people should be paying attention to uh, is there some things that you've come across in your work that for individuals that are listening that they can use for their lives um in a way that you think is important i mean i do think that this idea that to just think about the question of what deserves our attention and think about that fairly plausible idea that attention should be directed towards what's of significance and i think one thing that people can can use is to just reflect on that and think about whether they they what they can do with their attention to do that more and think that their perspective on the world the way they're going to experience the world uh is partly to a big part i think structured through attention and what will the the way we're looking at the, the world will be will be partly determined by our patterns of attention. And so take these two ideas together. Who you are, your perspective, is your pattern of attention to a large degree. And think about, is that in line with what you yourself think is significant? And I think that that will help, that, that, can, you know, that can be something to think about your life um, um, if you keep those two ideas together in mind. Um, um, you're not going to solve the problems of the world because there's other factors. But um, if you want to start with yourself, I mean, that's a place to start. Yeah, and it sounds transformative as well, to be honest. I found the more I've looked into attention, the more I pay attention to my attention and try to, I suppose, prioritize things that I think should be prioritized versus maybe just squandering my time with distractions. Um, and I think it's quite a meaningful way to live. It definitely has some positive effects individually and for relationships and whatnot. So I think it's very sage advice for people. Pay attention to that. Well, um, I hope it's, uh, 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 there's something, there's something to it. And I do think that attention is something that's easily forgotten because it's that fleeting, um, it's happening in the fleeting moment. Unlike our beliefs, our desires that are sort of stable, somewhat stable over time, attention is changing all the time. So it's easily 
forgotten uh, just how significant it is in shaping who we are. And I think taking taking it and make, centering it uh, in, in how we think about our experience, our lives, can be, a, 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 I think, a transformative experience. You're right. Thank you so much, Sebastian. I think that's the perfect place to finish it up. Really appreciate you making time for this. Thanks so much. Thank you.